0: I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is Luis Von Ahn, an inventor and computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon. Luis is one of the creators of CAPTCHA, a device that allows websites to determine whether you're a human or a computer trying to abuse your system. CAPTCHAs are wavy, distorted words on screens that people need to type out when you're submitting a form to a website to confirm that you're not a bot. His company, ReCAPTCHA, proved users were humans while digitizing books. The company was sold to Google in 2009. In 2011, Luis founded Duolingo, the most popular language learning program on the web, attracting over 150 million users in its first four years. Users worldwide learn a language for free while also translating the web into every major language. Investors include Google, NEA, Kleiner Perkins, Ashton Kutcher, and Tim Ferriss. Luis graduated from Duke in 2000 and got a PhD from Carnegie Mellon in 2005. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 2006 and is from Guatemala. Welcome.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: And all this, by the way, uh, since 1978, the year year you were born. Yeah, yeah. So, I want to talk about CAPTCHA first and about your your research, because your research at Duke and Carnegie Mellon has informed your career and your companies. Can you tell us what it means again?
1: Yeah. So, CAPTCHA is those distorted characters that you have to type all over the internet uh, whenever you're buying tickets on Ticketmaster. Whenever you're getting uh, a new account, for example, an email account uh, from from Gmail, or whenever you're opening an account on Facebook, you usually have to type these distorted characters. And And CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test-to-Tell Computers and Humans Apart. Basically, what it is is it's a test to determine whether you're actually a human. So for example, um, in the case of Ticketmaster, those CAPTCHAs are there. The, the distorted characters are there to make sure that somebody didn't write a program to buy kind of all the tickets for a concert, uh, you know, kind of two at a time.
0: You developed the term CAPTCHA mm-hmm. with a professor of yours, Manuel Blum, uh, who was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. How did you come on to this concept of security versus any other form?
1: In about the year 2000, um, I, was, I was listening to a talk at Carnegie Mellon from uh, a guy named Uri Manber, who at the time was the chief scientist of Yahoo. Um, he had a talk about 10 problems that they couldn't solve at Yahoo. One of them was they had a problem with people who were writing programs to obtain millions of email accounts from Yahoo. The people who were doing this were spammers, and so they were basically supporting spammers, and they didn't want to do that. Uh, over the next few months, with my PhD advisor, Manuel, we came up with this idea of, of coming up with a test. You know, At the time, nobody had thought, well, we should test whether they're a human or not. It, just the problem was can how do we stop these people from getting free email accounts. And we came up with the idea that well, one way to stop them is to make sure that it's a human actually getting them because humans can't get millions of accounts. They, humans can only get a couple hundred accounts because afterwards they get bored. Uh, so that 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 was the idea.
0: I've always liked the name Captcha because it's sort of like Gotcha. You know, yeah. lucky, yeah. That, lucky that, that you. That was the
1: idea. It's like, yeah, capture or Gotcha mm-hmm. or something.
0: Isn't it interesting path dependency? Like you happen to be sitting at this lecture with this Yahoo guy and had you not encountered him or or had your relationship with Manuel this might never have been. And it's always hard to think of counterfactuals and you might have gone on to create something else that's innovative. But funny how things happen through happenstance like this.
1: Yeah, there were all kinds of things. I mean, I also, I was torn about whether I should go get my PhD at Carnegie Mellon or whether I should go, I I was considering at the time going to Berkeley or Stanford and it, it wasn't clear. So yeah, there were all kinds of, uh, happenstance there.
0: Why did you choose Carnegie Mellon over Stanford or Berkeley?
1: Um, because of because, because I wanted to work with, with my advisor, Manuel. I mean, he was, um, this guy uh, won a Turing Award, which is kind of the, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Computer Science. And he was, uh, you know, uh, we hit it off really well as soon as I met him. So I, I chose Carnegie Mellon o- over all these schools because I, I could work with him.
0: And by the way, we mentioned Turing. You tell me exactly. Yeah, what so <laughs> Turing,
1: Alan Turing is widely considered the guy who, you know, the the father of computer science. Um, there's a movie about him, uh, The Imitation Game. I mean, he was in the you know he, w- he was a mathematician uh, in the middle of the century, uh, a British mathematician in the 1940s, 19, 1950s. The the British government contracted him to break the the Enigma machine, um, but in you know among other things that he did, he essentially started the field of computer science. Mm-hmm. And he had all kinds of ideas, and one of his ideas was uh, you know he thought well at some point computers are going to be probably about as, human, uh, as intelligent as humans. And one of the questions that he addressed was, when will we know that a computer is as intelligent as a human? And he came up with this idea of what's called the Turing test. Imagine there is a, there's a human judge that is talking over texting with a human and a computer. And if the human judge cannot tell which one's which, then we will say that that computer has passed the Turing test. Everybody in the field of computer science knows about the Turing test. And this is very similar to a Turing test, where you're trying to distinguish if you're talking to a human or a computer. But the big difference is the judge, in this case, had to be a computer, not a human. So it had to be, so it's this paradoxical thing that a computer needs to be able to determine whether it's talking to a human or a computer, but a computer should not be able to pass this test.
0: Now, in, in the same uh, research uh, as you were uh, trying to develop this idea of CAPTCHA, you also came up with the idea of GWAPs, mm-hmm. uh, which are um, games with a purpose.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, can you describe that? And um, how are they related?
1: Yeah. So, so, I helped develop this notion of a CAPTCHA. Um, and then it started being used by all kinds of websites. Pretty quickly, Yahoo started using it they had an actual. Big problem. Yeah, so pretty quickly they started using it and all kinds of um, websites started using it. And then uh, that became my research, where coming up with things that computers could not do, uh, but humans could do. In particular, I had just gone to a talk about somebody who was at the time working on a computer program to try to solve crossword puzzles. I thought, okay, computers can't do that. Then I got on a plane, and I noticed that everybody in my row was trying to solve a crossword puzzle. And I thought, whoa. These people are doing something that computers cannot do. And they're doing it willingly. So can we get people uh, to do the things that computers can't willingly? Uh, and that's where the idea of Games of the Purpose came, where the idea is these are games that people are playing, like crossword puzzles. But as they're playing them, they're, they're trying to solve a problem that computers cannot solve. Yeah. And you know, this was before the word crowdsourcing even existed, et cetera. But this is like the first instantiation of or idea of kind of crowdsourcing. Instead of getting computers to solve problems, um, can we get humans over the internet to just solve them for us?
0: Now, this is all around 2005, uh, 2006. In 2006, Mm -hmm. you get the MacArthur Genius Award. How does that happen? Was that out of the blue, or did you know you were nominated? What is that process? No, I
1: had no idea I was nominated. I suppose somebody nominates you, but you're, you're never aware of it. And in the meantime, the MacArthur Foundation is doing a whole lot of research on you and what... You know whether you should get one of these or not. Um, and at some point, you just get a phone call saying, hey, uh, you just got the MacArthur award. Um, but they're a little uh, sneaky. The, before that, they do, they do contact you uh, in, in ways that you don't realize. I mean, for example, in my case, there was, there was somebody who was supposed to be a PhD student in psychology who was very interested in my research. And I, and and actually, that, that was that was them. And one of the things they needed to make sure of is that when I got the phone call, I was there in in my office. And this person said, "Oh, I'm gonna you know I'm, I'm gonna come to I'm gonna come on that day." And so I was in my office waiting for this person, and I just got a phone call. Oh, wow. uh, so so they are they're a bit sneaky like that.
0: Who nominated you ultimately? Do you uh, know? You never find out. You were less than 30 years old. You were, what, 28 years old when you won the award?
1: Give or take, yeah.
0: So in this you know, five-year period, you get the MacArthur Genius Award, you develop Captcha, you're working with companies like Yahoo. How did you go about commercializing Captcha with Yahoo, for example?
1: So that the first instantiation of that was not commercialized at all. We just gave it to Yahoo for free. We were super happy for them to use it. We were academics, and we were just happy that, that somebody was using what we were doing. Um, later uh, I did start a company related to captchas but it was that kind of that was in 2006 where I, where I started this other company called recaptcha and that that became a commercial venture but that was that was much later
0: and prior to recaptcha your first company was called ESP yeah. which was matching images where two users from in two different geographic locations are using their computers to identify images mm-hmm. and they're playing a game they have to match their description of the image the founders of Google uh, Sergey Brin and Larry page got wind of this you gave a speech at Google where they met you where the founders met you Can I you did. describe that yeah, yeah
1: so that that's what happened I mean I I mean a few people from from Google heard about um, my work um, and so I went to Google uh, this this is 2003 2004' It's a much smaller company uh, so I gave a speech and the two founders were actually in the audience and then right after they just uh, you know very simply just said hey uh we're, we're going to make use of this. So can, can we buy it?
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it became part of their image labeler.
1: Yes, it, be, it became their Google image labeler, which was the the thing that was used to to improve search engine.
0: ESP was a one man band that that you sold to Google, and then your next company was Recaptcha uh, that you started in two thousand six, which basically was proving that you were human again, uh, but while g- digitizing books. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that idea?
1: So this was similar to the the idea of, of the the ESP game or the Google Image Labeler where, I mean, we're, we're trying to get people to solve problems for us that computers cannot. And in, in this case, the idea was the following. Uh, by, by, by 2006, captures were used all over the internet. Every single kind of major website used CAPTCHAs. I did a little back of the envelope calculation about how many. Um, captchas were typed by people around the world. And and the number that I came up with was about 200 million times a day. So 200 million times a day, somebody was typing a captcha. First, I was very proud of myself. I thought, look at the impact that I've had. Uh, But then I started feeling bad, because not only everybody kind of hated those things. I mean, the the captchas (laughs) are kind of universally hated. Uh, But also, each time you type one of these, you waste about 10 seconds of your time. And if you multiply 10 seconds by 200 million, you get that humanity was wasting about 500,000 hours every day typing these. So I started thinking, "Okay, can we get them to solve a?" An important problem, because during those 10 seconds, they're doing something that by definition computers cannot do. So can we get them to do something, something useful? And, and I came up with the idea of helping to digitize books. The idea is you, you want to put the book on the internet. The first step is you scan every page of the book. Now, scanning literally what it is, is taking a digital photograph of every page. The next step in the process is that the computer needs to look at these pictures of, of pages and extract all the words. So decipher all of the words in there. Uh, the problem is that for older books, the computer could not recognize many of the words. For the same reason, the computers cannot read these distorted the captures. For older books, sometimes the ink is a little faded, and the pages have turned yellow, and or the picture may be a little blurry, and it just cannot read. And At the time, about 30% of the words could not be read by, by the computer. Uh, so uh, I thought, well, I look at one of these pictures, and I can read 100% of the words. So can we get people to do it? So that was the idea. The idea was to take all of the words that the computer could not recognize in a book digitization process and then extract them as a picture and then send them over the internet to somebody who's typing a CAPTCHA. And whenever they type it, we're going to use what they typed to help digitize the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the idea of this company, and that, that started in 2006.
0: So incorporating the games with a purpose into this, incorporating yeah. crowdsourcing into this, all kind of, you know, gelling into this one stew of a company, mm-hmm. reCAPTCHA. When you started the company, how did you monetize, how did you make money from this endeavor uh, with digitizing the books?
1: So the idea is we provided a free capture service to websites, but the way we would make money is we would charge for book digitization. For example, we started helping to digitize all the New York Times archives. But they had scanned them and they had this huge problem that yeah, it was scanned, but computers couldn't recognize about 30% of the words.
0: Did you have venture capital? No,
1: no. Yeah. We didn't need it. I mean, we had I mean, on the day we started the company, we were making uh, we were making yeah, a few million dollars a year already, and we, we didn't need to spend that much.
0: Google acquired ReCAPTCHA in 2009. Yeah. You, in 2011, started Duolingo, which is the most popular language app on the web. Uh, and basically, you want to provide free language learning uh, to anyone in the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How did you come up with that idea?
1: Well, it started, I mean, so I, I, in 2009, Google bought reCAPTCHA. Um, and I, was, I, I went to Google for a little while after they acquired it. Uh, and I, I started really thinking, well, what, what do I want to do after this? And it was an interesting time, because I had more than you know, more than enough uh, solved my financial problems forever, and for me and for my kids. And it, it was fine. So I, I kind of didn't, didn't have to worry about money anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Do we know uh, how much they bought it for, or is that yeah, private? It's, it's
1: private. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, but uh, but I was I you know I, I was in a situation where I was a very fortunate situation. Um, but I started thinking, okay, what is it that I want to do for the next you know let's say ten years? Ever since age ten, I wanted to be a professor. Mm-hmm. So education was always my passion. My my views on education were always related to the fact that I'm from Guatemala. Uh, it's a which is a, it's a very poor country, and um, a lot of people talk about. Education is something that brings equality to different social classes. But what I saw in Guatemala and what you see in most developing countries is that it's the opposite. Uh, usually, people who have a lot of money can buy themselves the best education in the world. And because they're so well educated, they keep on having a lot of money. Whereas people who don't have very much money, in, in, especially in developing countries, barely learn how to read and write. So I wanted to do something related to education, but that would give equal access to everybody. So I decided that to work on one aspect of education, which, was, it, which is very large, um, happens to be very large in most every country except the US, which is learning a foreign language. There's 1.2 billion people in the world learning a foreign language. The majority of these people, 800 million of them, satisfy three properties. First, they're learning English. Second, the reason they're learning English is to get a job. And third, they are of low socioeconomic conditions. Okay, so most people learning a foreign language are basically trying to learn English in order to get out of poverty. That's, that's it. Mm-hmm. But the ironic thing is, at the time, most of the ways they were to learn a foreign language were really expensive, um, particularly through software. So at the time, it was kind of the height of Rosetta Stone. Uh, it was uh, about between $500 and $1,000. So, so the, if you're
0: poor, it's hard to get the $1,000 to pay yeah, This to is to the ironic English. part, right? right? I mean,
1: <laughs> you're trying to get learn English to get out of poverty, but it seems you need 1000 bucks, which makes no sense. Uh, so we decided to launch uh, uh, something to teach languages, but the, the whole goal was, no matter what, this is always going to be free. Now the question is how are we going to how are we going to keep it free, and at the time I thought you know this is one of those if you're a hammer everything looks like a nail. Uh, I thought let's do the same thing we did with Recapture, where with Recapture what we were doing is we were providing this free capture service, but in the background we were making money from people uh, you know helping us digitize books. So can we do the same thing with languages? Can we provide a free language learning website, but in the background we would be making money with people doing some something useful for us? I started this with my PhD student at the time, uh, a guy named Severin Hacker, which is is funny, his last name is Hacker, we thought, okay, the thing that people can do while they're learning a language is to help us translate stuff. Can we, as people are learning a language, get them to translate useful stuff? And that was the idea with Duolingo, and and it worked.
0: So again, you used the CAPTCHA idea and the GWAP, the the Games with a Purpose and Crowdsourcing idea, to come up with a monetization tool for Duolingo. Uh Uh-huh having companies pay you to translate content on their websites.
1: That's exactly right and, and and so as pretty soon after we launched, we CNN became our client. So they what they were what they were doing is they would write all their news in English, CNN, and they would send us the news in English and then what we did is we we had this language learning website Duolingo which we had just launched and we would give this news to some of our users. And then it was users that were learning English. So for example, Spanish-speaking users learning English, they would get it, and they would help translate the news into their native language, into Spanish. And they were doing it, of course, to help learn English. And then we would send that news story back to CNN, but translate it. We've actually moved away from this. Mm -hmm. This is not what we're doing anymore, um, but this was what we launched Duolingo with.
0: What are you doing uh, since then?
1: We realized that over time, we were spending more and more time on the translation quality than on actually teaching, because that's where the money was coming from. At some point, Severn and I were, were having dinner one time, and we thought, well, we've turned into a translations company, and do we really want to be a translations company? And first of all, this was not what we set out to do. We didn't want to be a translations company. And secondly, the translations business is not a good business to be in. Uh, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom. This was a tough decision because it was a business model that seemed to be working, but we decided we're going to stop this. And so we actually cut the contract with CNN and with BuzzFeed, and we moved away from that.
0: You did that because you wanted primarily to be a language learning company, not a translation company, which basically becomes a commodity. Uh, And it's, it's those decisions are the hardest when things are still going well. Yeah. Did you have any pressure from your venture capital partners to do that?
1: Yes and no. I wouldn't say strong pressure. I mean, the language learning market is a much larger market right. than the translations market and a growing one as opposed to a, a you know, you have this other Translation problem. One. Translation yeah. you also have this other problem that there's this looming thing that at some point Google Translate is going to get really amazing. Yeah.
0: You had a pivot moment uh, at this dinner with Mr. Hacker, with Severin. What have you decided to become?
1: We decided to become a language learning company. We, th- saw, we thought, oh, how are we going to make money? Right. Uh, particularly given the fact that one of our tenants is, we can't charge. We have three business models. And you know, this is one of those things. When somebody says they have three business models, that means they don't have a business model. <laughs> uh, but we have three that are each of them is working uh, uh, OK. So the first one, and the one that we've been spending most of our time on, actually a couple of them, came from, from our own users. We started getting an, a very common email very similar email from a lot of our users, and it was the following. It would say, thank you so much for teaching me English. I was not able to afford learning English before this, but uh, now I have a problem, and it is that I need a certificate that shows that I know English. People were asking, "You know, can you give me a certificate? We started looking into this whole certification business and what we found was pretty insane. So first of all, $10 billion a year are spent by people certifying that they know English. That's a huge amount. And there's all kinds of reasons. People who apply to come to college in the US, the way they certified is they have to take a standardized test called the TOEFL. But there's other reasons. If you want to get a work visa in the UK or Canada or Australia, anywhere in the Commonwealth, yeah. you have to take a standardized test that proves that you know English. If you work for many multinational corporations in, in non-English speaking countries, you have to take a standardized test. So it costs about $250. You usually have to take them in a physical testing center you have to make an appointment a few weeks in advance, about four weeks in advance. Then you take the test. Then you have to wait another four weeks for your results. So the whole process takes about eight weeks, costs about $250, and you have to go somewhere. That, that sounded pretty annoying to us, but then it's even worse because most people who are doing this are in developing countries. It's way worse. $250, hundred that's, uh, that's a month's salary.
0: So what is your solution?
1: We came up with a test that you can take from an app. You don't have to go to a physical testing center. And also, our test is way cheaper. As opposed to $250, we charge
0: $50. You've raised venture capital for Duolingo. It's the first time you have done so. Do you have any interesting stories on that process?
1: The first time around, it was not as difficult, as in the, the first the first round of funding. The first and second round of fundings, we, we raised them essentially on the fact that I had done something before. I right. mean, so we good. had an idea, right. but it, whatever. Um, and uh, that
0: was Google and Union Square?
1: Union Square Ventures was the first one. Okay. Um, and they, we, we loved working with them. I mean, they're, yeah. uh, they're here in New York. Um, the, one of the interesting things, so we're not in Silicon Valley. So Duolingo is actually located in Pittsburgh because of Carnegie Mellon University. One of the interesting things is when we raised funds, um, we found that the Silicon Valley investors all wanted to invest. But they all, in their term sheets, it said, you got to move. Silicon Valley. They all said that. Whereas we found that the New York investors didn't say that. They said, "Oh yeah, we'll travel to you." Um, so we we went with uh, a New York investor at the f- first round. After a while, after Duolingo had been going, you know, you can get money probably one or two rounds based on your previous stuff. But once once you've gotten a couple of rounds, you have to get money based on your success. Uh, so in the, the you know when we got, for example, when we raised money from Kleiner Perkins, uh, that was based on Duolingo's success and traction and you know, at that time we started being able to get money from West Coast investors without making us move because they're like, yeah. all right, fine. You're, you seem <laughs> to be doing okay in Pittsburgh.
0: You're from Guatemala.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, your mother and father are doctors. Mm-hmm. What kind of doctors are they?
1: Um, so my mother's a pediatrician. Uh, my father is, uh, they, they do uh, basically bone type stuff.
0: Your, your last name is Von An. You're, you're originally German. Uh-huh. Uh, your, when did your family come from Germany?
1: My father's parents uh, came in the early early twentieth century.
0: And what was the impetus for their coming?
1: Uh, there was there was quite a number of people from Germany and from Europe coming to to Latin America because of essentially for business opportunity. I mean, in in Guatemala in particular, what was going on is the educational levels were pretty low. Whereas if you came with a German education, uh, you probably could do pretty well. So you know, they they started a farm and they started they they, they knew about technology enough mm-hmm. to essentially succeed with little to no, no yeah. competition.
0: In addition to your parents being practicing doctors, they owned a candy factory. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so my, my mom is my mom's side of the family. So my my grandparents from my mother's side of the family decided to start a candy factory. They were both from Spain. It happened to grow quite a bit. Um, my my grandfather died at a, at an early age, so it was then my grandmother who... Ran this candy factory, and, and it became the most popular candy factory in, in Guatemala. They they made like marshmallows and uh, you know chocolate and all kinds of candies. Um, uh, at some point, they uh, they had, by the way, twelve children, Yeah. Uh, and my mother was one of them. And at some point, they passed on the baton to their children, and so my mother was one of the basically twelve owners of this. And uh, yeah, that was me growing up. I essentially didn't like the candy. How come? Well, I I got bored of it after a while. I mean, I I ate so much that I got bored of it. But I loved the machines. So on Sundays, I would go in there and... Especially break machines. Uh, I was not loved by the You're, by the engineers.
0: You'd break them because you wanted to see what they were like inside, or you pr- yeah. or you accidentally broke
1: them. No, no, no. Them. I want. I took them apart, yeah. and I, I would do stuff about taking them apart. Of course, I would take them apart, and then when I try to put them back together, I would be left with two or three pieces that I <laughs> didn't know where where they went, and uh, right. that, that was the problem.
0: What was the name of the candy company?
1: It was called Tropical Candy. Uh, it's still there.
0: Yeah. So marshmallow, c- chocolate. What else?
1: Gummy bears, and you know, almost any type of candy.
0: From an early age, you seem to have this curiosity about how machines worked, um, yet your focus is on computer science. Um, did you think you might want to be more of a physical like engineer, uh, mechanically? Early on, I,
1: early on I wanted to be. I mean, I really wanted to understand how all the machines worked, and I, I, I sat there at home making little you know, gizmos that probably didn't do much, but I was very excited by that. Um, it all changed when I was uh, eight. I wanted a Nintendo. And my mother bought me a computer instead of a Nintendo. But I was I was pretty pissed off because all my <laughs> friends had a Nintendo, and I she, she didn't get me a Nintendo. This was you know in the 80s. Computers were not super easy to use, um, and she also didn't happen to buy me a super easy to use computer. And so, well, what I wanted to do was play games. So what I did is I had to figure out how to how to use the computer to play games. I started essentially pirating games from from other people so I became quite a, a game pirate in Guatemala. <laughs> that that's how I that's how I got good with computers. Yeah.
0: So this is at the age of you know, 8, 9, 10, 11. Yeah,
1: the, 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 the pirating of games was more like 12. Yeah. That was, yeah.
0: Now, at the age of 12 also, um, you had this idea to make gyms free or start this business for free gyms. Tell me about that.
1: Well, at the time, I thought I was the first person to ever come up with this idea. I was not. A lot of people have come up with this idea.
0: Let me guess. Harnessing the electricity that you produce yes. by exercising.
1: Yes. Thousands, <laughs> if not millions of people have had this idea, right? It is. But at the time, you know, this is like a 10-year-old kid. I was like, I have this amazing idea I will become a gazillionaire from this idea I also thought it, it really worked you know this is by age 13 or 14 I would think I thought the way we're gonna make money is by selling the electricity to the electric company unfortunately you know when I got older you start doing being able to calculate how much electricity you can sell it turns out is not a lot right, I, it's right. it's and and then you start also realizing about the gyms that um, most of the money that gyms make are actually by people who sign up but never show up. Yeah. And so this is not a good idea. <laughs>
0: so you seem to be kind of a self-starting, industrious little kid. Did you have that view of yourself? And was that kind of the perception among your family members? Or how would they describe you?
1: Yeah, they, they would describe me probably as, as uh, nerdy and with A little too much energy. Mm. That's probably. I mean, I was always doing basically getting in trouble. Not not getting in trouble because uh, you know I was going out too late or anything, but getting in trouble by breaking things. I mean, one time I was trying. to, I wanted to make a helicopter uh, with an electric motor. I thought the way to make a helicopter is basically by having a fan pointing it down, and if you if it spins fast enough, it's a helicopter. (laughs) Turns out that is not (laughs) is not the same kind of blade, and so I had to. I, I bought this huge battery for it and it, it wasn't doing it. Then at some point I realized that if I connected it to the electricity, the this would help. This would help make it go faster. So I connected it to electricity and then I made, you know, not only my house, but a couple of houses around and they, uh, lost power because mm-hmm. of my brilliant idea. So yeah. I was always getting into trouble for doing Crap like that.
0: Yeah. And when you say you had a lot of energy, it was like mind energy, not so much physical. Energy. Oh, physical
1: energy, too. I basically <laughs> had too much energy. I, I, I'm pretty certain that had I been born today here in the U.S., I would probably be on, on some sort of ADHD drugs. Pretty certain of this. But back then in Guatemala, there was no such thing. It's just he had a lot of energy. That's all what people said.
0: And you do exercise daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you exercise on an elliptical machine, hardcore, for 15 minutes. Every day. That's
1: my workout. And how
0: long has that been your regimen, your go-to?
1: Maybe about five or six years. And it's really just as... I'm always trying to break my record, you know, as fast as I can go.
0: And Tim Ferriss is one of your investors, and he's all about uh, efficiency and work and workouts. Did you have this idea from him, where you were doing this even prior to your uh, your 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 relationship? Uh,
1: I, I was doing this prior to to meeting Tim, uh, but he has all kinds of uh, he has all kinds of ideas. He's he's really a pro with this.
0: What other things do you do that I might not know of uh, know about? What well, other quirky, uh, quirky parts things. of I, Luis? I don't read books, hmm?
1: and which is a rare thing for, uh, for a professor. The last book I read was in 1998. Mainly it's because I'm very slow at reading.
0: Do you go back to Guatemala?
1: I do, about twice a year.
0: And how does it feel being back?
1: Well... One of the things is I've become kind of a celebrity there because there's not very many people who are in the tech world from Guatemala. So I've kind of become a bit of a celebrity there. Um, People recognize me on the street. Uh, I mean, not all all the people, but it it happens almost every time I go out. I go and I basically don't leave my house (laughs) as I go and I visit my mom.
0: Uh, because it makes you uncomfortable
1: yeah that and it's you know Guatemala happens to be a dangerous country you, you start being worried about being kidnapped or something like that and I uh, I'm also very happy with the fact that my mom lives in a kind of gated community and barely leaves the house and also she's nobody nobody knows what she looks like or anything so that I'm happy about that
0: are your parents divorced
1: no my dad passed away when I was uh, 13 or 14
0: did that change your relationship with your mother
1: yeah I mean I, I mean I was always very close with my mother I mean I so uh, yeah I mean she, she's the one who essentially raised me
0: and are you an only child
1: I am an only child
0: isn't it nice that people appreciate you as a celebrity for doing something of the mind like for being a computer science geek that's so nice that you're you know it's not like Matt Damon walking down the street
1: right no it feels good and, and I think you know in particular in Guatemala Guatemala is you know it's a country with a lot of bad news. I mean, it's just bad stuff happens in Guatemala all the time. So they're very eager to get good news. So when you when they see somebody, I mean, for example, we have one one single Olympic medal uh, of all time, and the guy who won it is a super celebrity because it's like this is the guy who won the Olympic medal. Wow. Uh, and so anything that is, that you know, a Guatemalan that is successful yeah. uh, does, uh, you know, it's, it's people are very eager for that.
0: An Olympic medal and now a MacArthur Genius Award. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: My guest has been Luis Von Ahn. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.